The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. This is episode 32A. I had an opportunity to fly with someone that I've flown with a bunch of times in the past. I've always wanted to have him on the show and uh, never could work out a, a way or a time to interview him. So I decided since we were flying together on a late summer day from Martha's Vineyard up to Cranlin, Massachusetts, that we that I do the interview right there. So what you're going to hear is a, a live interview while we're flying uh, from point A to point B, mostly talking about tailwheel flying and his experience uh, doing that. You'll hear his credentials at the beginning. So this explains the audio quality, and but I do think it's a great interview, fun, fun guy to talk to, fun guy to fly with, and I hope you like it. Now entering cruise flight. It is a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast podcast. I'm recording this uh, sitting in the back seat of a uh, bird dog um, airplane uh, being piloted by sort of our guest today for this, uh, for this um, interview. And we're going to try to do an interview uh, while we're flying from uh, Katama uh, on the vineyard up to Cranlin for a pancake breakfast. Um, his, uh, his name is Paul Santopietro. He is a... Uh, 13,000 hour pilot, ATP, CFII, MEI, commercial glider, commercial single engine C, and between 8 and 9,000 tailwheel hours, which is huge. And that really is one of the things he specializes in. And we'll talk about that in a little bit um, because there's definitely an opportunity to hook up with him. And uh, if you haven't already done it, get your tailwheel endorsement. Or uh, if you just want to learn to fly, it's the, be- it's the best way to start learning to fly. I do a tailwheel. So, Paul, welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. Thank you. Did you start out when you were learning? Did you start out on tailwheel, or you? On no, no. I, I got my private in a Skyhawk. Okay. Only because I didn't know any better. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can forgive you for that, I suppose. No, it's funny too because when I got my private, the flight school I was at had a pretty good lineup of airplanes. It had three 152s, three 172s. A 172 retractable, a 182, a Cherokee 180. Wow. Uh, a Cessna 210. Where Cessna was the 310? Yeah. And they had a Satabria, a 7K Satabria, that you, they used for tailwheel work. But back then, you didn't have to have a tailwheel endorsement. That didn't come along until '92. Okay. So they just use it as an uh, introductory aerobatics airplane, uh, basically. Okay. And it was actually the Satabria, a couple of the airplanes, including the Satabria, were all leasebacks. And the, it was owned by a woman, a medical uh, MD, and she was the instructor in it. And it, it was a, basically a 10-hour checkout, but you had to have your private. So every day doing my private, I would walk by this airplane, look at it, and say, man, that just looks like it would be a lot of fun. Right. I can't wait till I can get in that airplane. And as soon as I got my private, I started doing my checkout of the Satabria. Wow. And again, it was a 10-hour checkout. 
Right. Then you can solo it. It was a 10-hour insurance checkout, and then you can solo it. And along the way, you did an introductory aerobatics course. Oh, cool. You know, all the basic stuff, just loops and rolls and all the basic stuff. And it turned into, obviously, a tailwheel checkout, as we would think of a tailwheel endorsement today. Right. So it was a lot of fun. The only problem was the airplane had some maintenance issues, uh -huh. uh, just airframe maintenance issues down in the tail. So after about, I soloed it, but after about 20 hours in the airplane, 10 hours of dueling, 10 hours solo, the airplane had left for maintenance and it never came back. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was some kind of issues with ownership and, and anyways, it never came back. But uh, it really whetted my appetite for those type of airplanes. Yeah, I bet. Hey, so, get rid of this guy. Hold on a second. Yeah. Hey, Randy, see you later. Thanks. I'll talk to you later on. Hey, go ahead. So, um, but I also know before you even did that, just to get your to get your license, you you did that fast, right? I mean, I remember the story yeah, you told me. Yeah, I did it. When I went to sign up for flight school, I was like most people, knew nothing about it. Didn't know the foggiest thing about flight training. Just knew I enjoyed flying in airplanes. And when I went, they gave me the typical spiel. Uh, you know, it's going to take, you know, six months to a year. And that was based on the fact that, you know, if you did one lesson a week, you know, it's about 60 hours or so to get a license. So if you did one lesson a week, then you would take about a year. If you do two lessons a week, it'd take you six months. So, you know, the, the, it was just uh, the, the sales pitch was, six months to a year. And so I said, okay, that makes enough sense. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, when can I start? I was just all excited. When can I start? Well, you can start tomorrow if you want. Okay, great. So I actually started, the, went back the next day and took my first lesson. I remember going home thinking, man, this is awful complicated, awful lot of buttons and dials. I don't know if I can do this, but I'm having a good time, so eh, maybe I'll try it again. So one thing led to another, but I got so excited over it that I ended up doing the start to finish in 13 weeks. Wow. <laughs> and I was just because I, I wanted to do it. So I went to the airport, like, what are we doing tomorrow? It was every day. Wow. I mean, I lived at the airport. And uh, it was funny. When, when I first started taking flight lessons, I was just really, really excited. Just excited to beat the band. I mean, just, I thought this was the greatest thing. But I would, you know, and I was so excited, I wanted to tell all my friends. And I found out I was the only person who was excited. <laughs> you know, I would get, uh, oh, yeah, Uncle Ernie tried that, and, oh, uh, boy, it's, you know, you know, you know you're not going to be able to do that. I'm saying, but no, I'm having such a good time, and I really quickly realized that if I wanted to be excited, I had to talk to other pilots, because they're the only ones who understood. Right. And I would tell another pilot, hey, I just did this. Oh, yeah, great, great. So everyone would be excited for me. Right. So I quickly learned that I couldn't talk about that uh you know, the family, the aunts, the uncles, the friends who didn't fly, I had to go find right. people who flew and I had to explain my excitement to them because they're the only ones who understood. I think that's probably very true of every pilot out there, which is you quickly learn how to, um, you know, where, where to share and where not to share. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, only other pilots understand. Oh, they do. And if they really understand, they understand what tailwheel means. You know, the, yeah. the, the, why it's different and why it's, uh, well, some, many would say you would say better, but, but certainly it's a, for me, I, it's a respect I have for people who do it because I know that my sense of uh, tricycle gear is part of why they're set up the way they are is 
you can master them quicker. They're sort Absolutely. of simpler, right? Absolutely, yeah. The, and the, that's why they, they really came into favor, was it's a lot easier. It takes a, I don't mean this derogatorily, yeah. but it takes a lot less skill right. to fly a Skyhawk than it does a Satabia or, or uh, something with a tailwheel, right. simply because it takes a lot more vigilance. You can, you can have a Skyhawk, and you can cheat a little bit and get away with it. Right. It'll kind of help you along. In a right, well, they've got the, I mean, there's, there's everything from those shock dampers on that front, you know, on the new ones anyway, well, the, or the shimmy dampers. Yeah, but the, that's the, the big thing is that in a tailwheel airplane, the back of the airplane always wants to be in the front. Right. In a nose wheel airplane, the front always wants to be in the front. Right. So if you come down and land crooked, the center of gravity is forward of the main gear, and it's mass in motion, so that center of gravity pulls the airplane straight. Right. Even if you put it down crooked, it wants to pull it straight. Right. In a tailwheel airplane, the center of gravity is behind the main gear, so right. the mass in motion is behind the main gear. So if you set the airplane down crooked, it wants to keep going even more crooked. So the back wants to come around to the front. Right. So in a Skyhawk or a Warrior or an Archer or whatever, and then with the nose wheel, if you come down and you set the airplane down crooked, its tendency is to want to straighten itself out. Right. In a tailwheel airplane, if you set it down crooked, its tendency is to want to get more crooked. <laughs> and that's the, the world famous ground loop. So it just takes a little more vigilance. It takes a, a little bit higher skill level. Right. So it makes you, it forces you to be a little bit better at basic skills, basic airmanship. Right. It just forces you to be better. Yeah, no, I get it. And I can appreciate that. Uh, too, the, you know, I, I, that part of it, also um, in the Satavri's case, right, no flaps. Yep. So you're also, you're also using aerodynamics that, that you can you can add through slips and other things to make yeah. stuff happen. They, I mean, I do a lot of tailwheel endorsements, that's what I specialize in. Right. And my findings over, over the years has been that people who learn to fly in a Skyhawk, Archer, Warrior, Slash, 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 don't really use their feet too well. Not all of them, but the vast majority really don't use their feet very well. Right. Uh, I think you had a story of somebody who sort of said to you, I don't I, I don't really touch those uh, pedals. Yeah, that was, uh, what was her name? That was her uh, name. That's right, was, we don't want to say her name. but well, I don't know her last name, yeah. but it doesn't matter. But it was a girl. Yeah. And it has, in fact, women make better pilots than men, so it had nothing to do with gender. But uh, it was just the way she was trained, and she, we were taken off, and as we were taken off, I noticed her feet were on the floor. So I said to her, Lauren, don't you think your feet should be up on the, up on the rudder pedals? And her response to me was, I really don't use them that much. <laughs> and that was just an indictment of her training, not of her. Right. Uh, well, what, what is the, um, you know, if you start now with people, what is the, the hardest thing about, you know, tailwheel? You, you, pilot or you know someone who already is a pilot or someone who's brand new what's the well, you know, if they're brand new you kind of have a clean slate right so you train them properly from the beginning yeah. if they've already been flying for a while and they're not used to using their feet then you have to really get them into using their feet right so, uh, which is kind of relearning kind of breaking some old habits and reteaching new habits right so, but that's really the biggest thing I find is people just tend to be a little bit 
uh, lazy with their feet and get a little bit sloppy. Right. So you really have to train them to really use their feet. Even when people roll in the turn, I've seen people in airplanes, you know, will go out, will do some air work, and they'll drop a wing, and they don't use their feet to help pick the wing back up. It's all with their hand. It's all aileron. Yeah. But we know just induces the turn further into the direction you're going. Right. So. Interesting. Yeah, just a lot of people, you know, especially if people learn to fly when they're a little bit older. Yeah. You know, in a car, you know, you're used to doing everything with your hands. You want to turn, you use your hands. You know, uh, and so in an airplane, you have to use your hands and your feet. So if right. people learn in a Skyhawk, they can keep those old habits of just using their hands to make the turns. Yeah. And where if they get in something with a tailwheel, they're forced to having to use their feet. So right. what we call in education the law of primacy. You start out, you have to use your feet so it becomes part of what you do. Right. So uh, let why don't I put it why don't I put in a little plug here in case I use this audio and, and can use it. Um, you teach basically, um, you're available to teach tailwheel all summer long out at Katema on the vineyard, right? Right, that's what I specialize in. Right, and your head, your, your sort of home base is Quonset still? That's yeah, where you have the hangar and stuff? Right, I have a hangar at Quonset. Uh, I don't spend much time there anymore. Right. I'm only on the vineyard for three months in the summer. The other nine months I'm actually down near Daytona Beach in Florida, New Smyrna Beach Airport. And you and you actually have you fly? You don't do you do much teaching down there, or is that uh, mostly just tailwheel stuff? Not a lot, but right. a, few, so a little bit. I guess what we'll do is make sure people can can track your your various ways to contact you later. I'll yeah. put those down there, and then that way, if they're listening to this and they want to find you, you know, they'll know that mostly the, the fun stuff is to come to the vineyard and and hang out and uh, book yeah. some, book some time. We did a learn tailwheel. Yeah. Now, you and I were talking. Uh, I think we were flying last time when we did the same flight up to Cranlin and. Uh, I think you told me a story about, you know, we were talking about being, you know, being heavy radio use or mostly monitoring and not, you know, because I was, I'm new and so uh, there's to some degree I'm, I'm interested in the the ease of hopping in a plane and going somewhere and not not overthinking it, not, you know, yeah. sweating all that stuff. And it's, I think there was a flight you were just cruising along listening and I, it's something to do with Air Force One. The driver called that right? You saw. Oh, that was going, yeah. I was coming back from. Uh... I was coming back from Maine one from Maine. day. Yeah. Oh, let me just tune this radio on a second. Yeah. At this point, we were interrupted by some chatter on the radio as it relates to the weather and our destination at the time. I'll let you listen to a little bit of that, and then we'll pick it up again in a minute. Yeah, you out there? Yeah, Paul, you on the radio? Yeah, there you are. You out there? I turned around. Uh, Plymouth was calling quarter-mile visibility and fog. Uh, well, you know what? You should keep coming this way. Uh, it's just low, and it might be, looks like it's clear up ahead. I can see, uh, I can see all the way to New Bedford, Fall River. Uh, looks like it's just cloudy over, uh, Plymouth, though. It looks like it might be clear up towards Greenland. Copy? I was just talking to the vineyard. I was turning around, but I guess I'll, uh, I guess I'll go back. Yeah, because I mean it's perfectly clear out to the northwest. I mean out towards uh, Portland and out that way it's perfectly clear. There's certainly a cloud cover here. I'm just cross. I just crossed Buzz's Bay, and uh, there's certainly a cloud cover right here. But I can see the end of the clouds up ahead, so it looks like it's clear right past Plymouth. All right, I'll I'll turn around, and go at 2,500, and see what I think. And if I turn around, I turn around. Okay, but I think you can make it. And I mean, if you look out to the 
you know, the Northwest, you could certainly go and do a cross country and come back to the Northwest, you know? Yeah, I, I, I see that. I was looking at that too. I just thought I, I thought the Cranland would be bogged in. Say that again? I thought Cranland would be bogged in. Yeah, I don't know. Like I say, I'm, I'm looking. It looks like it might be clear up there. All right, I'll turn around. And if you get up there, it's a little bit overcast. If you just head out towards, uh, you know, out to the west, it's beautiful. I mean, I can see forever to the west. It's just right here, just over the canal. Uh, in Plymouth, that's it. Alright, thanks. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be with you in a minute. Okay, stay on, I'll stay on this frequency. I'll be back in a minute. i got to talk to the vineyard. Okay. Play on the radio, Cranland? Yeah, go ahead, Cranland, on the ground. Yeah, good. Uh, what's the, is it overcast there? Can you get in there? Yeah, there's a big hole right over the runway. You can get in. Okay, thanks. Be there in a bit. Thank you. Hey Jack, you out there? Hey Paul, I'm back. Yeah, I just talked to him at Cranley and they said there's a big hole right over the field. You get in, no problem. Alright, I'll meet you there. Okay, where are you right now? I'm just over Nashville Island. I went back to the vineyard. Okay. Alright, so anyways. Uh, I was just jumping into that, that, that story you told me about Air Force One. And oh, right, yeah, yeah. That was coming. I was coming down the coastline from Maine. I was coming back from Wiscasset, Maine. And uh, I always thought that was kind of funny, because uh, I'm coming down the coastline, yeah. and there was a TF-9. There's uh, no wind, so this uh, cloud is stuck there. Was there. A, there was a TFR that day. That's a pretty cool looking uh, looking. Yeah, there was a TFR that day because of, yeah, you know, the president going up into peace. So, uh, I was talking to air traffic and they were giving me vectors and they gave me a vector that took me down the, just down the coastline, just a couple of miles off the coastline, but I was talking to the air traffic control. Yeah. And all of a sudden I hear Air Force One checking in on the approach to Pease. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, hell, they're on the approach to, uh, I think it's 3-5 at Pease, whatever the runway is, I think. but it was the Northwest Runway, 3-4, 3-5. I'm thinking, man, if they're on that approach, they're going to be right in front of me. I'm looking, sure enough, there they were right in front of me. <laughs> I'm going, how the heck did I end up here? But there was Air Force One shooting the approach into Pease. Nice. Uh, I just kind of ended up there, just uh, no, yeah. o no other reason. Just floating on by. Yeah, just happened to be there. That's cool. Yeah, kind of funny. And so we found our way into Cranlin and had a great time at the pancake breakfast. And a little while later, we went over to a nearby private strip and spent some time there with some friends and then headed back to the vineyard. The rest of the conversation took place on the return trip. I started with a question about the different types of tailwheel landings. Wheel, a wheel landing versus a three-point landing? Right, yep. And um, can, you, can you tell me about the difference? I know what they are, but like why... Or you can describe them too. Why is why is the wheel landing more challenging? Or I, th I assume it is. Or well, does, is it not? Yeah, it is. What happens is uh, when you come in, think about the landers that you do in your airplane, okay? Okay. A land is basically three parts: a descent, a round out, and a flare. Okay. If you land your Skyhawk or your Cirrus or your Warrior properly. You should land it on the two main gear, yep. and then hold the yoke back and let the nose wheel come down when it wants. Right. Most people don't do that anymore. What I see all the time is what I call a stop and plop. 
Yeah. They come down, they round out, and they kind of stop right there. They hold it, and then they let it plop on. Right. They do the stop and plop. They're very, it's flat, and they plop in. Yeah. They plop on, okay? And if you plop far enough, then the nose wheel actually touch before the mains, okay? Oh, okay. The nose wheel is not designed to be landed on. So it's a land not flare. So pull the yoke back, put it on the mains, hold that yoke back, and let the nose wheel come down when the tail... When it wants to. When, it, when it's ready, okay? Yeah. And sometimes if you've got a lot of finesse, you can actually, just before the tail dies, you can actually lower it aerodynamically, okay? Uh, That's yeah. Well, if you finesse it on, okay? Now, it's a descent, a round out, and a flare. Right. When we flare an airplane, all we're really doing is putting angle of attack in. That's what a flare is. You're right. introducing angle of attack right. to make up for the loss of lift because of the decreasing airspeed. Gravity then wants to take over. You want to hold gravity at bay just a little bit longer, so you introduce angle of attack, which produces a little bit of extra lift at low speed and helps you just kind of settle it onto the ground. Right. In a wheel landing, you're really just descending around out. There's no, there's no flare. Ah. So you don't have a flare or that angle of attack to save you at the end if you're a little bit high. Okay. So it takes a little bit more precision, a little bit more finesse, to do a nice wheel landing because it's a much narrower operating envelope. Three-point, you have this large envelope, descent, round out, flare. As long as you're somewhere in the ballpark, you'll get a decent landing. Right. A wheel landing is a very narrow envelope. Right. You have to get it right down to the ground and put it right on the ground right at the right time. I see. Or it's going to drop and bounce because, remember, you're not putting... Right. Now, once we round out, it's only a few seconds before, you know, once we round out, the airspeed decreases, the airplane starts to settle. It's not very long b before that settle converts to a drop. Right. Gravity takes over. So we want the wheels to go on while the airplane is still settling before it drops, because when right. it drops is when you get the bounce. I see. So we want to settle it on. Well, to settle it on in three points, you get a much larger operating area, operating envelope. And a wheel in is very narrow. That's Plymouth right there. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've been about right here on a couple different occasions. Yeah. I told the story of, um, you know, I was flying in and everybody was sort of, you know, people were were using the runway and the wind was moving around and uh, instead of making my own decision, I kind of uh, just followed people. And I, I think I ended up with with a tailwind and didn't, ah. didn't know it. And so it was, you know, it was a little hard to figure out how to control. And I went around, went around once and, you know, I got it, I got it done, but it was, uh, yeah, we call that follow the leader. Hopefully the leader knows what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. Huh? And, I, and I probably should have, uh, you know, hung around up here a little longer and evaluated it better. Remember, uh, remember that incident with the, was the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds where yeah. the lead guy went in the ground and a couple, three more followed him right in? No, no way. Yeah, remember that? But because all they were doing was watching his tail. Well, that's what they do. That's, yeah. how you, that's the only way you can do what they do. But the first guy, something happened. He went into the ground and the next two or three guys followed. Ah. So, and we talked about it earlier, the, la you know, the tailwheel plane landing versus the tricycle gear, you know, the the, the precision of, of everything being align, in alignment with the direction of landing is, is much more crucial. Is, is there any wiggle room there at all? I mean, do you... Well, yeah, I mean, there's a little wiggle room, but yeah. not, not... Not much. Yeah, not, not what but, I'm used to. Why not just be... Be right on with both. Yeah, yeah. Then you don't need wiggle room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wiggle room is only necessary if you get sloppy. Right, exactly.
So tell me about this plane, uh, just so I can record it for people. It's uh, yeah, go tell me about it. Well, it's a Cessna L19 Bird Dog. It was actually created as a replacement for what we used to call the grasshoppers during World War II, which was the L4s, the L5s. So this was created in 19, early 1950 as a replacement. The government put out a request, to, uh, contract request, looking for an airplane to replace those World War II grasshoppers. They wanted something that was all metal instead of fabric. They wanted something with a little more performance capabilities. The World War II stuff had 65 or 85 horsepower engines. Uh, right. maybe, maybe a little bit more, but they, they were looking for something with a little bit more capability. So I think there was four airplanes that entered the competition, and Cessna won with this airplane, designated the L-19, and they won the competition, and the first ones came off the assembly line in uh, 1950, late in 50, just as Korea was heating up, uh -huh. and they used them through uh, Vietnam, but by the time Vietnam ended in the middle 70s, early to middle 70s, the airplane was obsolete, so everything they sent to Southeast Asia they brought none of them home. There was about 3,400 of them built originally, uh, and out of that, there's probably about something like 250 to 300 still left flying. Uh, like everything in the Warbird community, every year they take carcasses that would have never got rebuilt 30 years ago, and they bring them back to life. So right. we're seeing a few airplanes added to the rolls because of that. Uh, of course, there was a lot of parts created, uh, spare parts, you know, whenever the government builds 3,400 of anything, they need a spare part inventory, so there was enough parts to build God knows how many more airplanes, right. probably double or triple that number, I don't know. But there was uh, lots of parts all over, engines and fuselage parts, etc., etc., right. repair parts. So a lot of those parts over the years have become flying airplanes, you know, they'll take a wrecked airplane and take the... the what we in a car would call the VIN number or the data plane yeah. in an airplane, take that data tag and use that to build a new airplane. So Right, keeping as many flying as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this was for, you know, observation. There's obviously a back seat where I'm sitting. That, yep, it was... Uh, there with windows that open so you could get yeah, a camera. It, it was kind of called uh, the Jeep of the year. They used it for a lot of things. They used it for, you know, just transportation, liaison. They used it for, uh, they would do aerial drops with it, they uh -huh. would lay wire with it, they would do it, use it for medical evacuation, and they also uh, used it, its biggest role was as a forward air control platform in Vietnam, uh -huh. so spot for faster, bigger airplanes. Interesting. Filled its role. It did a good job over the years. Oh yeah. What are we at? About 1,500 or something? Yeah, about that. Yeah. So of course, when they got surplus, they made a great, uh, great tug for gliders and banners because ah. it has the empty weight of a Skyhawk, but the power plant basically of a 182. So it had a wow. six-cylinder Continental engine. This one is rated at 213 horsepower. So they derated them for the forward air control role. But the uh, 0470 went up to uh, some airplanes, uh, 230 horsepower, maybe a little bit more. So it basically had the empty weight of a Skyhawk and the uh, power of a 182. So great yeah. power to weight ratio. Right. So it made a great glider tug. It made a great banner tug because of the great visibility. We've got windows all the way around and right. obviously in the roof. 
Right. So that's how I started flying him as a glider tow pilot out at Plymouth, Mass. Back in the late 80s. I always found the tow up from a, from a glider point of view challenging. As a young, you know, when I was when I was trying it out, just keeping the line taut, keeping your altitude appropriate relative to the plane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something you get your hang of. But yeah, it's a skill. It's like any skill. It's a skill you develop as you go along. Yeah. In fact, that's how I started. I went to the glider port to get my glider ready. Just thought it would be something fun to do. Yeah. And I ended up working there. <laughs> you know, I already had tailwheel time. Yeah. When I got there. I already had my commercial. I was just going there to have fun. The guy said, oh, you got tail, you fly to, yeah, you got commercial, yeah. I said, well, you want to do some towing? I said, yeah. So I basically never paid for a glider lesson. I just, I, you know, got it in trade for the work I did. Right. That's great. I hope you enjoyed that. Oh, totally. That was a blast. I know we're a little later than we said, but, uh. What? We're a little bit later than we oh, thought. Oh, no, we're okay. I've been keeping them posted. They know. All right, good. Yeah, no problem. Hey, we only live once. I enjoy some rehearsals. Exactly. So. Yeah, no, and I'd also don't, you know, I don't get to fly with you and have this experience, which is, yeah, we get into places that I can't get into. Yeah, it was fun, was it? Yeah, very fun. I want to thank Paul Santo Pietro for giving me another great experience flying with him. I always learn a lot, and it never fails to remind me how great it is to fly low and slow, especially in a plane with windows that open. If you would like to get in touch with Paul to maybe schedule some tailwheel training of your own, just go to his website at learntailwheel.com. You can also find him by Googling Bay State Aerial Services, and we'll put that information in the show notes. Paul is on the east coast of Florida for much of the year and on Martha's Vineyard's grass field at Katema, 1 Bravo 2, every summer. Two great spots to learn to fly. Well, that's it for this special episode of the Stuck Bike Avcast. Thanks for listening to this and all of our episodes. And as Len Costa, our host, would say, clear skies and calm winds. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa production.